Welcome to Black Fashion History, the podcast that celebrates the contributions of Black people to the fashion industry. It's Black history, but make it fashion. And I'm your host, Taniqua Martin. Welcome, 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 everybody. We are back with another episode of Black Fashion History. One thing about me, as you can probably tell from this podcast, is I love all things fashion history, especially anything having to do with Black people as it relates to fashion history. So if there's a book out, I'm going to try to read it. If there is a magazine article, a website, a movie, a TV show, I'm going to look at it. So recently, September 15th to be exact, HBO Max released this documentary on Danielle Luna. Danielle Luna is known as the first Black woman to cover Vogue, and she's also considered, in some parts, the first Black supermodel in the world. I talked about Danielle Luna a little bit in the podcast episode that I did about Black models who changed the face of the fashion industry. And I did mention there that she was the first Black woman to cover Vogue and all that stuff. So you should go back and listen to it. You should actually pause this episode right now, go back and listen to the fashion model episode, and then come back. Now, for those of us who have been on our Zoom, you know what I'm talking about because you already listened to the episode. But I have always wanted to do like a full-blown breakdown episode talking about Danielle Luna and her career, but there just hasn't been a ton of information out there. Like I've tried several times, several ways, and there's just not a ton of compiled information about Danielle Luna and her life. So when I saw that HBO Max had this documentary out, I was like, I am jumping on it. I am watching it because I need to know. Now, my thought was I was going to watch the documentary, do some more research, and then I would have enough information to do a full-blown episode and, of course, you know, direct you all to all of these sources. But as I was watching the documentary, I was like, you know, what's even better than that is I'm just going to do a recap and my thoughts on Danielle Luna as a person and my thoughts on the documentary. So that's what today's episode is going to be about. And I have some thoughts here, some thoughts that I did not expect to have, but I'm excited to share it with you all today. First off, the documentary is on HBO Max. And if you don't have HBO Max, then I think they still do that free 30-day trial. So sign up for the 30-day trial so you can watch the documentary after you listen to this episode and see what I'm talking about. So first, let's start with my overall thoughts. Overall thoughts on this documentary, I enjoyed it. Like I said before, I love anything that's going to give me more information about Black people in the fashion industry. So low bar there, it already checked that off. But in addition to that, it was very well made. And the one thing that I really appreciated in this documentary were the sources. I feel like a lot of documentaries that I've been seeing recently on different things tend to have sources that don't make sense to me. Like I've been watching the Time of Essence documentary four-part series that's on OWN and it has a lot of celebrities in there and I get it that celebrities were in Essence and like Essence was a part of their career, their childhood or growing up or whatever. But to me, the celebrities didn't make sense in telling the whole story of Essence or the background. Like I really would have preferred them to just focus on the editors that work there, the guys that founded it, you know, 
that kind of stuff. And so that's what I mean by sources that don't really make sense. Like even in like the women in hip hop documentary that's on Netflix right now, I forgot the name of it. But again, there are a lot of sources in there that to me just didn't make sense for the topic. But here in Danielle Luna's documentary, I felt like the sources were good. Her daughter was in there speaking, which I didn't even know she had a daughter. So that was great. Her family, like her siblings, were in there speaking. And then her husband, the guy that was her husband, was in there. Photographers, friends, and like really close friends. Who else? And then they had industry experts. So Aurora James was in there, as well as some other like editors, professors, you know, people who are experts on the subject matter of fashion and like race relations and things like that. So Love the sources. And then the documentary was broken up into different parts. So it started off with her life in Detroit, which is her birthplace. And then it moved into New York. It moved into London after New York and then Paris for the final chapter. And it kind of broke up her life into the places, you know, where she lived out different thoughts and feelings and parts of her career and all that. Now into the meat of things. There are a lot of things here that I did not know about her. Which is stating the obvious because I mentioned that I couldn't find a lot of information about her. Now, one of the things that I love that they called out in the documentary was the fact that there isn't much information about her. I think everyone, bottom line, outside of her family and close friends who knew her in her career, like the industry experts that they pulled in for commentary, they all acknowledged the fact that Danielle Luna was this figure in fashion. She's the first Black woman to cover Vogue. There's, she was in movies, you know, so many things, and she is not talked about. And many people who are considered experts in the industry don't even know about her. So love that that kind of elephant was acknowledged. It made me feel less crazy. And then it made me excited to get into what they were going to share because they took the time to paint this picture of mystery about her. I would say two of the biggest common overarching themes in this documentary about Danya Luna was this idea of mystery and etherealism. So she was born Peggy Ann Freeman to a Black American family in Detroit. And the reason why I stress that is because if you've ever seen an interview with Danya Luna or when you hear her voice in this documentary, she has an accent. And it's not a European one. I guess Well, to me, it wasn't a European one, but maybe it's a mixture of accents from all the places that she lived. But I don't believe it is, and I'll get to why. But if you hear her, it just doesn't sound like she's from America. And so I was surprised to learn that she was Peggy Ann Freeman from an American family, a Black American family that actually was part of the Great Migration. So they moved from the South to Detroit to make a better life for themselves and their family, escape the racism that was in the South, make more money, all of those things. So they said in this documentary that Danielle Luna was a persona that she created as a way to escape the world where she was in her teens. She was this tall, beautiful woman, but didn't, obviously as a teenager, feeling awkward and being made fun of and not being acknowledged in the world for how beautiful she is. But she created Danielle Luna as a persona and she created an accent. And that's why I said I was surprised to learn that she was American. But she created this accent and this name 
and then start to just embody it. And as soon as I said that in the documentary, it just made me go, hmm, why did she choose this route? Because I was just very curious why she opted to create a whole entire persona. And then her sister commented on it in the documentary and gave the perspective of their father. And their father's reaction to it was the same thing I was thinking, which her father said to her, like, are you running away from being Black? Like, why you don't want to be Black? And I know they mentioned in the documentary that she did get teased as a child. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe part of it was being teased as a child. But then they also mentioned in the documentary that made me start to look at her, not necessarily her, but maybe her experience is a little side eye. It's because they would say that when she was younger and she would go to school, she would never say that she was black. She would always say that she was part Indian or Spanish or Irish and always play up on this mixed race persona. Now, the documentary doesn't mention, and I don't know how old she was when they moved from the South or if she was actually born in Detroit and never even experienced living in the South with her parents. So I have to look that up in more detail. But, you know, all of these things I definitely think leads back to the perception of Black people in society at the time that probably, you know, made her believe that she wanted to be something else. And this is a theme that we're going to see again and again as I go through all of the stuff that I picked up from the documentary. But based on the information that her sister gave when they talked about their family home life, there was some destructive and toxic parts of their family home life. But in terms of affirming Blackness and the beauty of it, that didn't seem to be an issue, at least not at home for them. Okay, so after like we get into her home life a little bit, and there's so much more, but that's just the one thing that stood out to me and like the piece of it that I just could not let go. But after we leave her home life, then they move into the second segment of the documentary, which is her life in New York. So when she was 14 in Detroit, she was discovered by a photographer. He was in the documentary. I don't remember his name, but saw her down the street. Like, she was beautiful. He thought she could be a model. He gave her his contact information and said, look him up if you're ever in New York. And then in the fall of 1964, she went to New York. And when she was in New York, she started to claim that she was half Mexican again. That's that Danielle Luna persona that she created. And I guess the persona she created was a mixed race person. Anyway, she gets to New York, looks him up. And within three months, she starts working. She's on the cover of Harper's Bazaar, which was called Bazaar at the time, but not as her photo, as a cartoon version. And to me, the cartoon didn't even really look like her. It looked like her in terms of her features and like an outfit that she wore and how her hair was but it looks like they made a white woman version of her as the cartoon which again is to be understood for the time and where the industry was while she was in New York she was becoming increasingly popular in the industry she's a very beautiful woman like to me eye-catching really and everybody talked about that in the documentary how like when you saw her, you would literally stop in your tracks. And so she was getting a lot of work in New York. And then there was this photographer named Richard Avedon who put her under contract. And I did not know that photographers could put models under contract. 
But what that means is that no other photographer could shoot her (laughs) but him. No matter what cover she did or what advertisement she did, nobody could shoot her but him. That was his model and his muse. So she was shot by Richard Avedon, put in Bazaar magazine, not on the cover, but like in the spread as herself. And the magazine received a ton of backlash for this because uh, she's black. Like advertisers pulled out. They were receiving a lot of complaints. Like it was a lot and it took a toll on her. And then the documentary moves into drop what I feel like is the biggest bomb ever because they didn't really allude to it or they alluded to her having a toxic home life at the beginning. But then the documentary after the whole bizarre backlash goes into saying that her mother killed her father. And I was like, what? That was wild because they touched on it so briefly. Like they touched it with the lightest feather ever. They just said that she had a troubled home life. And I only took that to mean that like maybe her parents were arguing, maybe her dad was cheating or he stayed out and never came home, stuff like that. But I didn't grab abuse from that. So maybe that's just me. I missed it. But apparently her mother got tired of the abuse, ended up killing her father. And of course, that took an even bigger toll on her mentally and physically. And then this is when the documentary goes into sharing that this around this time, she started creating fairy tales and stories as a way to escape. So first step was the persona of Danielle Luna as a way to just be somebody else in a different world. And then at this point, I started to understand it better because her home life wasn't great. Her experiences out in the world probably weren't great. It didn't go much into details, I guess, when she was younger about any of the experiences she had, but definitely with this bizarre thing and the magazine getting backlash as a result, her feeling unworthy because people are complaining that this beautiful Black woman is in this magazine and then, you know, things happening between her parents. It's like, your girl needs an escape. And so she has created that with her persona and then she starts writing stories and creating stories of herself in a whole new world. Okay, so that was her New York chapter. And now the doc moves into her London chapter. So they talked about the great migration of Black talent to Europe, which was happening a lot during this time, especially in the fashion industry. Designers, models, photographers, musicians, and the creative arts area as a whole, but definitely fashion. I can name a number of models who have said that they went from the U.S. to Europe in search of better opportunities and that they got it. So same with Danielle Luna. She moved to London and she got more opportunities. She was definitely what you would call an it girl. Like I said, her beauty, everyone wanted her, but just in the United States, racism, 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 as it does, was really just standing in her way. And so she couldn't become the it girl in New York So she went to Europe and really became the it girl. Like she started dating one of the members of the Rolling Stones. I don't remember who. She started appearing and everything. And then Time Magazine called her the most extraordinary of the evocation of the Negro we've ever seen. Now I had to stop and look that up. (laughs) Because at first I wasn't getting that like evocation means like evoke. (laughs) So... 
what I gathered from it and what has been, again, a consistent theme in this documentary is this ethereal or deity-like characteristics that people are trying to attribute to Dania Luna. So then it goes into her life in London, especially, and all of the work that she's getting. And in London is where she actually got the cover of Vogue. And it wasn't American Vogue. It was a British Vogue. But the photographer that shot her was David Bailey. And when I tell you, in the documentary, when that man said that he didn't even know she was Black, what his specific words was, I thought she was Indian. I never thought she was a Negroid. I died laughing. And here is why. Because, again, I told y'all from the beginning when I heard that she created this Danielle Luna persona, I kind of understood it and I got it. But it also made me side-eye her. And even though the documentary doesn't talk about the image that she projected when she was in London in terms of her racial makeup, the fact that he thought that just made me go, again, I don't know. I feel like she was running away from being Black. I don't want to say it, but I have to say it. And I'm not even saying I don't understand why or even condemning her for doing it. I'm just saying I feel like she was running away from being Black. And so when he said that, I just had to laugh to myself. So the documentary also starts to now actually address that piece because I think at this point, when we're in London, I think we're about an hour in now. It didn't really touch on that idea, like her wanting or like expressing racial ambiguity or expressing wanting to be something other than being black or at least like communicating to people that she was something other than being black. It didn't really talk about it. No one commented on it. No one gave thoughts outside of the fact that her sister said that her father said she was running away from being black. So now... After she gets the Vogue cover and they're talking about her life in London, then the documentary starts to address it. So there's a professor in the documentary and he says that looking at Danielle Luna, one might wonder why she isn't as racially provocative as we'd want her to be, given the backdrop of the time. It's the 60s in America where there are tons of civil rights movements going on movements for freedom going on, like there is the Voting Rights Act in discussion and people are fighting for, you know, there's remnants of Jim Crow. Segregation is still legal in some parts. You know, you just have a very much racially charged and segregated America specifically at this time. One that she's experienced because she received so much backlash in the States for being not even on the cover, but in the pages of Bazaar Magazine. So Danya Luna was never that girl to speak up about it or kind of use her platform as a tool to fight racial injustice, call it out or anything like that. The documentary actually specifically says that she was evasive every time she was asked about racism and civil rights and that she is on record as having said she wishes she was white and blue eyed. And so that just made me think about several things and just ask several questions. And I'm going to like pose several questions to you guys, even though I know you can't respond, but just things for you to think about. Does she, we, or anyone in the position as a first, because at that time she was officially the first black woman on the cover of Vogue and really the first starting to be known international supermodel. And it's like, Is that her responsibility? Should she make that her responsibility? She's a model. Should we be looking to her at this time 
you know, for that? That's just a question and a question to all of us. When we're in these positions as Black people in different spaces, we put pressure on ourselves and other people to be this voice for social justice and change, especially if certain things are happening at the time. And my question is, should we be? Should that be everyone's responsibility? I think partially yes. And then I also think activism is a gift and a calling. You know, so there are people who are called to being freedom fighters in that sense, like being on the front line, like being in the forefront of social justice and change, having the knowledge and the experience and the ability and the desire to be able to do that work. And so that's the no part for me where I'm like, no, it shouldn't be your responsibility. And then the yes part for me, because I said, I think partially yes. The yes part for me is that I don't think any of us can afford to ignore what's going on with our people anywhere in the world and like distance ourselves from it as if it doesn't affect us because it does, even if it doesn't personally affect us, which I think is strange because it personally affected Danielle Luna, like it came to her front doorstep. But even if that is in our experience, we still cannot afford to ignore what is going on with anybody anywhere. But I think the action of being an activist is a gift and it's a calling. So there is a middle ground that becomes the responsibility of all of us when something is going on in our community. And I think we have to find out what that is in the context of our individual work. And I guess that's what I wished of Danielle Luna is that she found what it was in the context of her work as a model. We should all be working together and we definitely should not be working against our own progress. But I don't think we all need to be activists just because we're thrusted in the spotlight. I think there's work that she could have done as a model. Being representation, first of all, and then owning that would have been a powerful commentary. So owning the fact that you're the first Black woman on the cover of Vogue and using whatever influence you start to develop over time in the industry as a way to bring other people in. I think that's work that makes sense within the context of her knowledge and her space and is an example of her working together and not against the progress of her own people. But according to the documentary, again, it talks a lot about her misrepresenting her race, like who she is, and then, you know, wishing she was white and then being very evasive when it came to the topic of civil rights. Also, I'm not one to be so quick to attack Black people who have this idea. And the idea that I'm talking about is her words that she wished she was white and blue-eyed. Because I really do think that there are nuances here. It depends on like what it was like when you were growing up. You know, were you teased for being Black? Have you been mistreated for being Black? I can understand her thought that she doesn't want to be Black. And clearly is a thought that's been manifesting since she was a little girl. It's why she created this persona. You know, I think the emphasis for that And I don't know for sure because the documentary doesn't say, and this is me giving her the benefit of the doubt, but I do think the impetus was that white people were clearly being treated better in her world. And so it starts to make sense that, you know, she would wish that of herself. It's just really sad. And I wish that this was a moment that someone could affirm her. But unfortunately, she was the only pretty much in her industry at this time. I'm sure there are definitely not a ton of Black photographers or editors or anybody else like in her circle 
And I just wish that there was somebody there that could like wrap their arms around her and kind of affirm her in her own beauty and affirm her in her blackness and kind of communicate to her that God made you who you are for a reason. And that includes showing up in this world as black and that that's okay. And that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, to just use that in a positive way. So I just became a little bit sad there for her. I wish that, you know, she had that experience. Okay, after London, the documentary moves into Paris and it goes into her Parisian chapter. And her Parisian chapter is full of some new things like art and film, theater. And then it also talks about how she posed for Playboy. I had no idea. I had no idea a lot of things. I've said that a lot. We get the point. But I was shocked to hear that she had posed for Playboy because I feel like that's information that is easily accessible right now. And I know Playboy keeps archives. And that's something that I feel like we should have been able to find online is the fact that she posed for Playboy. And it does make me wonder, like, was she the first Black woman to do so? So that's an interesting tidbit that you learn. Now, do y'all know who Diana Vreeland is? She is a very famed American fashion editor and writer. She has worked for Harper's Bazaar. At one point, she became the editor-in-chief at Vogue. And then she became a consultant to the Costume Institute of Metropolitan Museum of Art. So she's pretty much Anna Wintour before Anna Wintour. I guess more accurately, Anna Wintour is modern-day Diana Vreeland. Anyway, she was working on this shoot, which was going to be called the Caravan of Furs. It was going to be about a whole bunch of furs and a whole bunch of gorgeous models photographed in a creative and artistic way in furs. And of Richard Avedon, that photographer that put Danielle Luna under contract, he, of course, wanted Luna for the furs. Vreeland wanted him to shoot it. He says he's not going to shoot it without Luna. Like, he needs her look. Vreeland goes, in reference to Danielle Luna, she's nobody's idea of what anyone wants to look like. My jaw dropped. And then my jaw dropped even lower when the documentary said, and I wish I could remember the words, I should have wrote it down. But then she made some reference to like King Kong, about how King Kong might be popular, but nobody wants King Kong, something like that. It was crazy. But she referenced King Kong in this context. And I thought that was wild. What was even wilder, and I know I shouldn't be surprised because of the time, but crazy. What was even wilder is the fact that the producers are reading this to Beverly Johnson, a Black woman. Beverly Johnson is actually known as the first Black woman to be on the cover of American Vogue. So, you know, Dania Luna is her predecessor. And in this moment, when the producer says that to her, you can see her visibly react in multiple facial expressions. And then it's silence, but the silence is very loud. And then after that, she says, thank you for reading that. And then she, you know, starts to cry a little bit because it's hurtful. And it's probably a little bit shocking. Like, mind you, Beverly Johnson has worked with Diana Vreeland. And Beverly Johnson is visibly black. Unlike Danielle Luna, who you can tell that she's a black woman, but she's a lighter skinned black woman. So uh, she's visibly black, but she's lighter skinned. But Beverly Johnson, there is no confusing her. There is no Beverly Johnson saying that she's Spanish and Indian and half Mexican. No, like Beverly Johnson is a brown skinned girl. 
So if that is what she thought of Luna, then imagine what she thought of Beverly Johnson, or at least if I was Johnson, that's what I would have been thinking. So it's shocking, but not shocking. But also, it's just a lot. And to me, it was also proof that Blackness and Black bodies is just a trend in fashion. It really is. It's one that fashion uses. It shouldn't be, but it's one that fashion uses and puts on when they want to. Because the same night of Reland in the 60s is over here talking about nobody that Luna's nobody's image of, you know, what anybody wants to look like or nobody's idea of beauty is the same Diana Vreeland that has worked with several Black models. And yes, we can say that she had a change of heart and maybe she did, but even taking it outside of her as a person, fashion in general just tends to use Blackness as a trend. And to me, this was just another example of that. Because a couple years, if not just one year down the line, Luna did a whole spread in Vogue or Bazaar, one of them. But she did a whole spread of gorgeous, gorgeous images. And you're not telling me it's because they had a change of heart. It's because that's what the quote unquote trend started to move towards. There are more black models showing up in other places. There were black magazines exclusively dedicated to black models. So they just wanted to start jumping on the bandwagon. And then after, you know, this whole fiasco, the documentary just goes into more, well, it leads away from her work in modeling and then it goes more into her work in acting and how she was in several movies and commercials. And that's a lane that she wanted to go through even more. It talks about how she started to explore art more and then also how she started to write a children's book. And so it just starts to go into her other activities and outlets as a way to escape. And then the whole documentary, it ended with the trauma of her passing. And so she passed away from, I believe, a heart attack or a heart issue. The documentary kind of alludes to it being as a result of an overdose. But a lot of her friends in the documentary, even though they do touch on her doing drugs socially, nobody, at least none of her friends, kind of believed that it was an overdose. They don't know what it was. But that's how the documentary ended. And I know I shared a lot of stuff that was highlighted, but there are a lot of things that they talked about that I did not touch on that I thought was very interesting. And I think you will too. So please don't listen to this and say that you're not going to go watch the documentary because you should. Now, by the end of it, I'll say I did not walk away from this doc with the same feelings that I had going into it, or at least starting it. When I started the documentary, I was kind of side-eyeing her. And then as I went through it and towards the end, I walked away sympathizing with her because of the trauma that she's faced, what she went through as a Black model in a predominantly white industry, and the toll that that would have taken on her. I will admit that a lot of times when I read about figures in history that have done the great things, whether they're the first Black person to do this or they're a freedom fighter or all of that, I don't immediately connect it with the trauma that you carry or you experience as being like the butt of racism all the time. And when I was watching the documentary, I was looking more so at her response to it and kind of side-eyeing her, being a little bit judgmental for her response to it. Again, we talked about the, you know, wanting to be white thing or changing her persona thing or saying that she was something other than Black. I was looking at her response to it versus the trauma that she is experiencing by experiencing 
the racism. I just wish that she had the opportunity because she passed away really young. I believe she was like 36, definitely in her 30s if she wasn't 36. I just wish that she had the opportunity to truly um, be able to heal from that, to get some help, seek Jesus, seek therapy, and really heal from those things. And I would have loved to see the woman that she would have been today had she lived that long. Another thought that the documentary brought up for me, and it isn't in reference to her specifically, but it's just the fact that sometimes we look at people who break barriers and we forget the fact that sometimes it's as a result of happenstance. Like they're just doing what they love or pursuing the things that they enjoy. And then we beholden them to this way that they should act because now they have been thrusted in the spotlight as the first Black person or the most famous Black person to do something. And I think we got to reel it back and remember that these are people just like us, everyday people who just happen to run into something. Now, there are some people who have been intentional about doing the work of social justice, but there are many people who have happened to fall into being a Black person in a spotlight. And we have to give them that grace to be people and learn to figure it out and figure out what their new role now means for the community and if that's even work that they wanted to engage in. All in all, it was very interesting. It was good. It made me think about a lot of things. Definitely, I love that her story is being told and being shared with people. You know me, this is the point of the podcast. The more stories we learn about Black people in the industry, the better. So I love that Danielle Luna is being respected for what she was able to accomplish and how it helped others, whether it was intentional or unintentional. If you all have HBO Max, make sure you watch it. And if you don't have HBO Max, borrow the login from a friend and watch it. And I would love to hear your thoughts. I'm going to do a post on Instagram and a post on Facebook. And then we're going to use the comments as our discussion point for the documentary because I really, really want to know. And that's it, guys. Make sure you check the show notes for a direct link to all of the resources that I use for today's episode, as well as the link to Bishmi Marty's fashion show and a couple of interviews that I was able to find of Rosemary E. Miller online. If you love today's episode or any episode, make sure to give us a five-star review on Apple. It takes you all of two seconds, but it really, really counts towards helping this show reach more people um, and more Black fashion enthusiasts like you. And if you haven't done so already, follow us on all social media at Black Fashion History Podcast so you can keep up with all things Black fashion history. And the most important thing, if you do nothing else, come back next week and join me for another riveting installment of Black Fashion History. Bye-bye.